Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 6. Listen for what God is saying to you. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I ask, I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think we are acting according to human standards. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. We're doing uh, our, our sermon today a little bit differently, so we've got to kind of do a little bit of setting up. Jesus is going to be preaching with me. Just kidding. <laughs> Please join with me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come and worship you, to open our hearts and minds to receive what it is that you have to say to us. We give you thank for, thanks for the gift of an extra hour this morning um, that we might maybe sleep a little longer or take a little more time to ready our hearts for this moment when we maybe will encounter you and your word in a new way. Be with us, challenge us, love us, strengthen us, heal us to wholeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this week, I heard a segment about, um, on the radio about all the different um, superstitions that people were employing during the World Series to help the Cubs win. And there was a psychologist on the show, and she was explaining how superstitions help people have a sense of power over something that really is outside of their control, actually. And as I listened to some of the superstitions that were talked about, the funny thing is that rather than giving folks a sense of control, they really actually seem to be kind of like locking people into these really awkward situations. For example, there was one woman who called and shared about her daughter who um, had basically been wearing the same clothes since the World Series started and had only been changing her underwear and socks every day of the series. And then uh, there was also the guy who tweeted that he hadn't taken off his Cubs hat since they started the series and could not face North while watching the game. Um, maybe there were some folks here who had some of their own superstitions. Anyone here had any superstitions? A friend of mine, um, uh, 
had fallen asleep during the first game that the Cubs won, and so he felt like he should take a nap every time the games happened. Uh, conveniently, it happened to also be when they were supposed to be, like, you know, cleaning their apartment and everything. Um, but so... Anyway, for as much control folks um, think or, or hope that they're exercising over a situation, at the end of the day, it's actually the very thing that they're trying to control that ends up controlling them, right? Do you own your superstitions or do they own you? Or in the case of our passage today, do you own your thoughts or do your thoughts own you? This is the question that we'll be exploring this morning. Paul is talking about uh, talking to a group of people, uh, the Church of Corinth, uh, who are having a hard time knowing exactly how to exercise autonomy over their thought life. And, you know, if you grew, went to a church in an evangelical context like me, you might actually associate this specific passage with a particular kind of conversation. I remember every once in a while there'd be some guy, it'd be like a special day, some guy would come up and talk to the other guys in the community about their thought life. And by this, they meant thoughts about sex, because, of course, women never had thoughts about sex. And, okay, that's one way to interpret the passage, but that's always what I sort of associate with this passage. Um, But as you know, as we know here and we practice here, we recognize that there are many different ways that Scripture can be interpreted, right? Right. Okay. Um, So what can help us do this as faithfully as we possibly can is to understand a bit about what this passage is about. So Paul has heard reports that um, folk are coming in with a pretty harsh interpretation of the gospel. And these outsiders are using basically like every dirty trick in the book to discredit, diminish, and derail the hard work that Paul has dedicated his life to building. They called his preaching weak. They criticized his side hustle as a tent maker, as evidence of his worldliness, and sort of just generally accusing him of wimpiness, right? And... Fortunately, we don't have leaders like that anymore in our uh, national conversations. Um, It's not just Paul, though. The folks that he sent are also that he sent out after him to continue to nurture the community are also getting pounded by these outsiders. It's not entirely clear if it's working, but one thing is for sure: Paul isn't certain that it's not working. He's worried. He's not worried so much about himself, like what they're saying about him. He's worried for them the church. He's not physically present, and so he's feeling kind of hamstrung by that, and he's afraid that their faith will get co-opted and twisted by people who speak a powerful message for the wrong purpose. And so he's urging them to guard their minds, to not let themselves fall into the trap of getting caught up in the charismatic personalities of these outsiders, that they don't end up exchanging the greater purpose and imagination of the gospel for what's here and now. Because this capacity for imagination, the ability to see God's vision and imagine ourselves into it, this is key for living the life that God created us to live. So a few months ago, I was talking with uh, Mike Algeyer, who many of you know is a chiropractor. Um, And at one point, he mentioned this concept to me, the five psychological predictors of chronic disabling pain. And I was like, we're going to make a sermon series about that. So healthcare workers apparently have long known that our psychological and physical wellness kind of act as a feedback loop, that what's going on with one thing ends up affecting the other or impacting the other. And these five traits in particular, fear, um, catastrophizing, um, which is like worst-case scenarios, right? Passive coping, uh, like avoiding activities that cause discomfort. Um, Poor self-efficacy, thinking that you're not capable. And depression. 
they seem to have a significant impact on predicting the effectiveness of treatment. And so over the next few weeks in this sermon series that we're starting up, um, we'll be looking at these psychological predictors, using them as a kind of lens for thinking about our spiritual health and wellness. Today, we are talking about that first predictor, fear. Paul is fighting a battle for the minds of his people um, in Corinth, and he can sense a cloud that has moved over the community, threatening to disrupt the message and ministry of Jesus by twisting it through a filter of domination and fear. He tells them, I'm humble when I'm with you, kind of trying to explain um, some of the accusations that have been um, he's been hit with. I'm humble when I'm with you, but I'm bold when I'm away, not because I'm weak and because I'm fearful when I'm with you, but because I want to demonstrate with you a different way of being in relationship, to be inspired by a message that says sacrifice is actually the way to gain. Weakness is the way to strength. A community that's held to a standard of love and not bound up and hamstrung by fear. What does it look like to be bound by fear? Well, I've asked uh, the newly minted Dr. Jean Jeremy Brink that very question, so I'm going to invite her to come up and join me here. Um, so Dr. Jeremy Brink uh, currently works as a fellow with the Family Institute at Northwestern University and specializes in depression, anxiety, and panic, interpersonal and relational challenges, addiction, substance abuse, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, shame, grief, and loss, suicide prevention, academic and work-related issues, and identity development concerns. So, you know, all the feel-good moments of life. Uh, but because of her experience in these areas, I asked Gian if she would be willing to share with us a bit about the ways that she has seen fear delay or prevent her clients from moving toward healing and wholeness. Thanks, Emily, and thanks for this opportunity to share some of the work that I do with people. Um, when I work with individuals, couples, and families, some of the things that I've seen is that um, when people experience fear and anxiety, what happens is that it basically changes your brain chemistry um, in a way that it creates this negative thinking and reduces your ability to um, think in positive ways. And this happens in a number of ways, such as um, something called dichotomous thinking. So for example, you think in extreme black and white ways. There's no in the middle, there's no way to kind of negotiate what is the truth. Um, another thing is selective attention to only the negative things that are taking place in your life. Um, you know, selectively thinking about what's wrong in life or what is going wrong in your life, which then makes it harder to um, overcome that anxiety or that fear. Um, in, in, in result, what happens is that a lot of people tend to feel stuck, tend to feel trapped in a box. Their world gets smaller and smaller. Um, their ability to engage with other people, um, their ability to think in um, various or diverse ways becomes um, a limiting factor to them. Um, and oftentimes, it makes them feel inadequate, insecure, um, it makes them believe the lies about themselves, mm. or the lies that have been told to them by society. Mm. Um, it makes them feel that they're living in a world or in a place of scarcity. Um, it motivates people to make decisions that are not um, representative of their values or who they truly mm. are as people. And in result, they start to um, live their lives um, guided by their depression or guided by their anxiety. And so um, what we know in the field, um, we know that fear is stemmed from 
um, a place of uh, shame, hopelessness, guilt, and embarrassment. And what it does, it, it um, has people carry themselves in a way that um, they're guided by their worries or their sense of hopelessness or restlessness. Um, and what I saw with a lot of individuals or couples and families is um, low self-concept or low self-esteem starts to set in. And um, people start to isolate themselves or avoid um, people, uh, their loved ones, their communities, people who are there to kind of like support and uplift them. And one of the hardest things of living in isolation is that other problems or issues start to spiral out of control. So um, it's, it's very common that when someone's living in fear or isolation, um, they start to self-medicate themselves with um, substance use or abuse, um, start to engage in self-harming behaviors, um, and then also addictive behaviors. Mm. Um, one of the things that um, I try to do from the beginning with people is building up coping skills. And uh, one of the hardest things that you some people might think would be simple is helping people self-identify their own personal strengths that they um, mm. that that they encompass themselves for um, as an individual, but then also that they bring to um, groups and collective communities. And a lot of times people are like, you gonna make me do this? <laughs> or they're like, um, you know, I really don't like to talk about myself in that way. And not only does it help me identify some of the um, insecurities that they are holding right now, but it helps um, them to understand how um, talking about their own strengths is a challenge for them. Um, and what I find is that, especially with working with couples, this fear of change or fear of loss is uh, very present. Um, one of the things that I do at the Family Institute is um, working with high conflict couples who are either dealing with communication issues or um, a lot of times infidelity issues. Mm -hmm. And you see that people are very they talk about being motivated for change, but when it comes down to actually addressing some of what might have to happen um, to make some of those changes happen, you see this fear of change or fear of loss of what we have now um, to be um, something that is impeding their, um, impeding their abilities to kind of move forward to healing and recovery within their relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Um, you know, so I was at this um, workshop last week, and one of the things that they um, talked about for strengthening couples was a kind of constant habit of appreciating one another and verbalizing. They were like, you don't get points for just like mentally appreciating it. Like right. you have to tell the other person that you appreciate. And in a way, it's sort of like identifying the strengths in, in the unit of the couple, even um, in addition to thinking about your own individual self. Um, and recognizing that, um, I think especially like in the, the Christian context, there, we kind of get like fuzzy about what humility means mm -hmm. and that, um, that humility means you can't have any good thoughts about yourself, mm -hmm. um, that somehow that makes you a prideful person um, and maybe beginning to think about, you know, God treasures you, God mm -hmm. sees all of the individual gifts and um, values and strengths that you bring to this world and to the project of, of Kingdom Come, um, that, uh, that, that that's part of living into that, recognizing that, naming that is part of what it means to 
live a free and liberated life. And so this idea of living into a place of fear is a really powerful force to be controlled by that, right? It's driven by a deep need for kind of some sort of weird self-preservation because Mm -hmm. you sort of close in on yourself. Um, But also, I I heard you mention shame um, and maybe even a lack of control, a sense of, um, I can't, you know, I'm giving up on the, the world around me. Um, So Paul was kind of watching fear begin to unravel the fabric of this community that he had so delicately stitched together by love, and in some ways was feeling a little helpless about it, like I said, because he was was not with them. And so he he kind of, from far away, is, is summoning them to courage and strength, and he calls them to take every thought captive and make it obedient, obedient to the message and ministry of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But how exactly do you take every thought captive? What does that look like? Well, um, you know, I'm going to try to stay in my lane, but I've, uh, I have, uh, from, based on a Radiolab episode I heard, um, I, there, are, uh, there are three particular um, approaches that therapeutic practitioners have tried to help their clients um, approach this idea of taking your thoughts captive. So first there's the Freudian approach, which I think is sort of like the, in a lot of ways, the founda- it sounds like the foundation of, of where a lot of this work has kind of built from for better or for worse. And this approach says that every thought that you have has meaning and that it reveals something deep within you. So um, this has probably been the most influential approach to therapeutically engaging negative thoughts and people kind of dig in and and sort of try to say, like, figure out, like, what is this saying about me? Well, and the second um, is cognitive behavioral therapy, and this approach came out in the 60s, um, and it's basically the opposite of the Freudian approach. It says, don't trust your thought. Challenge that thought. You go to a party, and the voice starts up, nobody cares for me, I'm a social outcast, I don't fit in, I shouldn't exist. Cognitive behavioral therapy would say, how do you know these things are true? And kind of like what Jean was saying, like, list your strengths. What are, is, this, is it really true that nobody likes you? Right. you know? um, and just kind of realistically try to assess for yourself whether or not those thoughts really bear any re- relationship to reality. And studies have shown that cognitive behavioral therapy is more effective and leads more people more quickly to mental health than the Freudian approach. So it's pretty popular in practice. Um, and that re- more recently, there's a third form of therapy that has slowly begun to replace cognitive behavioral therapy, and some people call it mindfulness therapy, but I don't know if that's actually, is that like the official term? Do you know? Mindfulness behavior therapy or techniques. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this approach says that our negative thoughts don't mean anything that they don't reveal anything about you, and they don't even need to be taken seriously enough to be challenged, that our thoughts are like waves that come, and we should just kind of ignore them and let them wash away. So I I think that these approaches offer helpful ways for taking our thoughts captive, and I share them because maybe they might be helpful, or maybe a combination of these might be helpful for you. But as a pastor, as someone who both proclaims the good news of the gospel and tries to help others claim and live into the good news for themselves, there's another dimension that I think needs to be considered, and that's imagination and hope. The capacity to see beyond what's here and now. This is what the message and ministry of Jesus is all about, imagining a kingdom that is both here and not yet here, a hope that activates us toward that kingdom. The message of the gospel isn't one of fear. It's a message of deep hope and expansive imagination of what's possible in this world. Mm-hmm. It's a message that says, in all things, at all times, we trust and belong, we trust in and belong to a God who calls us beloved. 
And when we claim this love and belonging in Christ, we have access to a new way of seeing and being in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're given a new set of standards by which to measure our lives and our minds, a set of questions that help us engage who we are and where we're going, a set of questions that help us take our thoughts captive, questions that ask things like, are these thoughts life-giving? Are they loving? Are they liberating? Questions which remind us that we are not claimed by fear, but by a God who seeks life, Mm -hmm. who seeks love, who seeks liberation on our behalf, and who does this work beyond our, in those spaces that are beyond our capacity. But these questions aren't asked or explored or lived out in isolation. Being a Christian means that we don't do this alone. We do it as part of a community who is also claimed and loved by God. We don't withdraw, and we look out for one another when we notice one another withdrawing. A community that commits to God's bigger imagination on our behalf and on one another's behalf. So we support each other, we help each other, and challenge each other with these questions, right? And more. So I asked Jan if she'd be willing to share the ways that she has seen caregivers and communities um, support those who struggle with fear, which, let's be honest, is all of us at some point in our lives. How can we support each other? Well, one of the things um, that I like to um, remind people is just to be yourself. Um, for those who are the supporters, for those who are the caregivers, mm-hmm. if you are that person that um, brings the jokes and the joys to the group, continue to be that. If you are that person who's always there in the midnight hour to answer a phone call, continue to be that. If you're the person that brings food or mm-hmm. cooks a meal, continue to be that. Continue to be yourself. But understand some of the limitations that you may have in assisting people in that journey of overcoming fear. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that requires... Um, some of this fear that can be debilitating to people requires some professional help. And so I understand that in many communities, seeking out mental health services has its own stigmas and negative connotations, but um, I'd like to um, encourage you know, supporters and caregivers to encourage others to seek out services that can be supportive to those that are um, experiencing anxiety, depression, fear, or other things. And so um, I'd like to um, explain therapy in a way as it can be a good opportunity to try something new mm-hmm. or explore places or things or places about ourselves that we never knew. Um, another thing is reasons why people sometimes you know avoid or self or isolate themselves is fear of judgment mm-hmm. or fear of sympathy from others. Like oh, I feel sorry for you, mm-hmm. and really that's that's not what they want or need, or or that's not also helpful, mm-hmm. and so. Um, one of the things is helping to build empathy for people. Mm. Um, and that's, it's a concept that we know, but doesn't, we don't really know how to actually live that out. Um, I think empathy requires us to have a deeper understanding and awareness of somebody else's emotions and feelings. And that requires you to be in relationship with that person. Mm. That requires you to kind of walk alongside people to really know what's going on in their lives, to really be invested in them. And so that requires a lot from us. That requires a, a deeper and higher level of commitment. And so um, taking the time to truly listen, to be there and be present for somebody um, is, um, is something that, 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 that contributes to this empathy building. Also validating their emotions. Um, simple things as tell me how you're feeling. Um, help me understand what's going on. Um, this must be really hard for you. You know, please let me know in any ways that it can be of help or assistance. 
um, can be really, you know, those simple things can be really reassuring and validating for somebody's feelings, but then also can be one of the steps and ways to kind of help them move forward, um, move forward in their journey. Um, I'd also say um, reassuring people that, you know, emotions change, you won't always feel this way. Mm. Um, a lot of times um, fear and anxiety can kind of be debilitating and thinking like, um, this is the way my life is or will always be. Um, so helping, so kind of providing that reassuring message that uh, emotions change, circumstances change, and it, you know, acknowledging and encouraging the improvements that you see being made can help them not only build insight, but also can help build your own self-confidence and self-esteem in terms of being an advocate and encourager mm -hmm. for the potential that you see in that person um, and in the ways of helping to kind of liberate them from the fear that holds them back. Mm -hmm. So do you kind of pay, being in relationship enough with people that you can see right. even when it's happening right. um, and having a strong enough relationship that you can call, call them forth, mm -hmm. you know, out of places of... Um, like despair or isolation or, right. or fear. Um, and, you know, this is what it actually means to be Christian community. Right. <laughs> um, this is our baptismal commitment. When, when people are baptized, right, we commit to the person who is being baptized, but we also renew our commitment to one another, that we are, we are on this journey together, that we are helping one another get to know who, more of who God is and who they can be in God, um, to claim God's vision of healing and wholeness for all. That means taking every thought captive and helping one another take every thought captive and bending it toward life, toward love, toward liberation. We don't fight with our fists, Paul says. We fight with our hearts and our minds, not for domination, but for mutuality. Mm -hmm. It's an economy of mutuality, a mutuality that strengthens the fabric of a community that has delicately been stitched together by love and promotes healing, a healing that results from critical engagement and a disciplined mind, a healing that leads to courageous wholeness. Mm. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the caregivers. We give you thanks for those who have um, lent their minds and their hearts and their spirits to helping us help one another. And so we ask, God, that you would help us to be a community that resists fear that claims healing and hope and imagination, not just for ourselves, but for this world that you have called us to live in and serve and even love. Help us to be people who enact um, the antidote to fear, especially in times like this, that we might be um, the appearance of Christ so long ago in that room when the disciples were overcome with anxiety, that we can be agents of peace, not just in the sense of um, the opposition to war, but um, as purveyors, as merchants of hope and imagination, that we might not get stuck in small rooms in our minds, but that we might have the capacity to claim life, to claim love, and to claim your liberation for all of us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Jan.